Hey, Acquired listeners, a note about this show before we get started. Ben and I recorded this episode the night before the 2016 election day in the United States. At the time, the biggest change we saw coming was adding a new type of content to Acquired in analyzing IPOs, which we introduce in this episode. Two days later, we woke up to a very different world than the one we were expecting. Reflecting on what's happened and the past few months of our show, we wanted to say two things. First, we apologize for our cavalier attitude towards this election cycle over the past couple episodes um, and our glossing over of the clearly very real problems and deep divide in America that it represented. In the Skype episode, I pretty glibly compared the AT&T Time Warner merger to Make America Great Again, arguing that any reactionary force is, quote, on the wrong side of history uh, and cannot be relevant in a changing world. I was wrong. That sentiment is wrong, and it's insensitive to the very real pain that a lot of people are obviously feeling out there on both sides. Second, looking back on the episode, we think it actually presents a relevant parable for our country right now, and we hope some important lessons for the technology industry going forward. For all its wonderful aspects that we celebrate on the show, there is no doubt in my mind that the tech industry shoulders a lot of the responsibility for the current divide in America, and especially in its contribution to wealth inequality. Likewise, for all of the wonderful aspects to the Facebook IPO story that you're about to hear, there is a very clear dark side as well. Facebook shareholders, investment banks, and institutional investors raked in billions of dollars at the expense of public retail investors who lost their shirts. At the same time, Facebook's perseverance and their determination in overcoming what were massive existential challenges to their business model, uh, as you'll hear about in this episode, um, at incredible speed, uh, we think can be an inspiration to us all right now on how to move forward when um, it doesn't look like that's super possible. Um, we hope you'll listen to this episode with that in mind and think about how you and we and the technology industry as a whole can do better in serving everyone in this country and in the world. Um, thanks for being on this journey with us. We're sorry for our shortcomings. Um, we're going to keep working really hard to do better. And uh, with that, on to the show. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome back to episode 25 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. Today's episode, we're trying something new. We're piloting a new idea, analyzing IPOs in addition to our normal acquisition format. When we started the show, our goal was to understand what made an acquisition go spectacularly well. And over the past 24 episodes, we've started zooming out and asking ourselves exactly why that is. Both David and I are really trying to understand how to create big, enduring companies, and we know that's why a good chunk of our audience listens to the show. Oftentimes, you can have these huge, successful acquisitions, but that's not the only goal. The goal, for us and for many entrepreneurs, is to create lasting value. As we thought about what direction we wanted to take the show, it became more and more clear to us that we should be looking at companies that don't get acquired, but go all the way to going public. And really, these are even a better example of building hugely valuable companies. So today, we're starting with a monumental IPO in recent history, Facebook. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yes. I'm really excited for this, and uh, I hope you guys are too. Uh, not that we're going to stop doing acquisitions, but we thought this was, as Ben said, just a great direction to take the show. So let us know what you think uh, in the Slack channel, by email, on Twitter. 
Um, we love feedback here and acquired. Very true. And uh, in, in typical, I mean, um, both of us are very involved with early stage companies in, in different facets and in kind of typical customer validation, customer development format. Uh, be harsh. We love all your criticism and uh, we want to make acquired the best best show possible for yep. you guys. So helps us make the show better. True that. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right. You want to go into uh, the IPO history and facts? With that, this is an epic one to start with. Um, So... I'm going to assume that most of our audience is familiar with the Facebook founding story. Um, you know, if you're not, we highly recommend you go watch the social network. Or if you'd like a less fabricated version, the David Kirkpatrick book, or there's, there's a yes. variety of good resources and we would do a much worse job telling that story here than you could get elsewhere. Yes. Uh, much ink has been spilled on that front. Um, but suffice to say that Facebook was founded in 2004 by Mark Zuckerberg, Eduardo Saverin, Andrew McCollum, the forgotten Facebook founder, um, Dustin Moskowitz, and Chris Hughes. A whole bunch of stuff happened, including turning down several acquisition offers along the way, uh, most notably a $1 billion acquisition offer by Yahoo in 2006, just 
when the company was two years old, um, sort of, uh, foreshadowing Instagram, uh, in years to come. And, mm. uh, I think, I think Mark has, has talked about turning down that acquisition being one of the pivotal moments, um, I think that's, in the history that's, of the company. That's, and that's the kind of like crisis moment in the bathroom. I think he like, there was a, a point there where he, uh, I'll have to check my facts on this and we can do it in follow up. But I think this is the one where it was over dinner and he ended up in the bathroom, like looking at himself in the mirror and having this emotional crisis of, oh my God, am I actually turning down a billion dollar offer? Yeah. Crazy. But he did. And Facebook went on to, uh, much more than a billion dollars in value. Yeah. Um, so much so that if you Google the Facebook IPO and you find yourself on the Wikipedia page, there's a whole Wikipedia page dedicated to the Facebook IPO. And uh, right in the beginning, it refers to it as a, quote, cultural touchstone. Yeah, and that's no joke. I mean, it's one of the largest acquisitions of all time. I'm sorry, the, one of the largest IPOs of all time. Indeed, the third largest behind Visa and General Motors, um, but probably happier than those two since those were, um, at least General Motors was post-financial uh, crisis when the U.S. government was mm. re-IPOing it huh. after the bailout. Huh. But talk about enduring companies to, to yeah. study. Um, so let's dive into it. Um, in the late days of Facebook as a private company, which it spent eight years from 2004 until 2012 as a private company, Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, a frenzy, not just inside the company, but outside the company, everybody and their mother, literally their mother wanted to be an investor in Facebook. And, um, at the time there were actually two ways, uh, two sites that had popped up that would let you do that. Uh, there were these, um, these vehicles called uh, second market and shares post. And these were startups themselves that mm-hmm. facilitated trading private company stock. Um, now you had to be an accredited investor to do this. This mm-hmm. was before the jobs act and before a lot of the new equity crowdfunding laws and regulations. Did you have to be an accredited investor to sell or just to buy? Uh, just to buy. Um, but employees could sell on these sites and the vast majority of all volume being traded on these sites was Facebook shares Hmm. in 2010, 2011. Um, and this was starting to be a really big problem because, um, now all of a sudden Facebook and other companies that were, whose shares were trading on these sites, um, they'd sort of lost control of these shares and they had all these shareholders out there who they didn't know who they were. Um, and at the time pre jobs act, uh, the laws were that you had to have less than 500 shareholders as a private company. Once you had more than 500, um, shareholders, uh, you had to go public. Hmm. And so this was happening, uh, in Facebook more than any other company, uh, at the time. And, um, uh, in an effort to sort of try and, um, uh, also get under this 500, um, shareholder rule in 2011, in the January, 2011, uh, Facebook separately, did a rather infamous deal with Goldman Sachs that didn't go so well. Um, The first part of the deal went fine, and that was that Goldman invested $450 million itself in Facebook. That happened. But the second part of the deal, and that was at a $50 billion valuation, the second part of the deal was that Goldman was going to create a special purpose vehicle 
that was going to be one single entity. And then it was going to market to its private wealth management clients the ability to invest in this special purpose vehicle um, that was going to be a billion and a half in total. And then that would invest, that would vehicle would invest in Facebook. And so they sent this email out to select private wealth management clients um, of Goldman saying, you know, opportunity of a lifetime. It was like right. a uh, like a uh, Nigerian cash scam email <laughs> <laughs> that Goldman was sending out to their clients. You know, they couldn't even they didn't even couldn't even say the company by name. It oh. was a unnamed high growth private company that they were offering the opportunity once in a lifetime an opportunity to invest in. Wow, but you throw the Goldman brand behind that and it seems like yeah, sure. Seemed like a good idea at the time and to Facebook too. Well, the SEC didn't think it was such a good idea. Um, so Dealbook uh, New York Times Dealbook actually leaked, um, uh, scooped that this was happening. Hmm. And um, after that, the the SEC started investigating and Goldman ended up, um, they still ended up doing the deal, but they uh, did it with all foreign clients. So they decided that uh, it was too risky to have uh, U.S. investors oh, wow. invest in the deal. And this was a huge, huge moment. Um big egg on Goldman's face and on Facebook's face for um, what came across as really trying to skirt U.S. securities laws. Um, Hmm. And up until that point, Goldman had been sort of um, top bill in the running to be the bank that would take Facebook public. Right. And this basically killed their chances of being lead left, quote unquote, on the IPO. And what is the, for uh, for those of us like kind of not from the industry? What is lead left? So when investment bankers take a speaking as a reformed investment banker myself, when investment bankers take a company public, um, there's usually a consortium of banks uh, that underwrite the IPO. But there's one bank that's the leader, and that's referred to as being lead left, quote unquote, which is on the cover of the prospectus of the IPO. The bank that's at the top and on the left is lead left, and they get the ah. biggest allocation of the IPO. And it's always a huge battle amongst the big bulge bracket banks for hot IPOs. And there was never going to be any IPO hotter than Facebook to be the lead left. Um, Not only because they'd make a lot of money from it, but the prestige associated with that, well, in theory, we'll see what really happened, uh, live on for a long time. Um, So because of these two things that were happening, um, there was immense pressure on Facebook to finally go public in the 2012 timeframe. So late 2011, they start preparing. Um, They actually select Morgan Stanley, uh, Goldman's longtime rival, Hmm. uh, to be lead left. They're deep preparing for the IPO. And um, business is going great. Uh, For the year of 2011, they ended the year with 845 million monthly active users, 483 million daily active users. So doing the math on that, that's over 50% DAU to MAU ratio, which means over half of Facebook's users used it every, every single, single day, day. which Wild. is just incredible. Um, and even still to this day, there's so few products that are like that. And and not just usage, but engagement. So they were seeing at the end of 2011, over 2.7 billion likes and comments per day, which is crazy. And by the time they actually went public, um, 
in uh, in 2012, they they had amended their fi- their S1 filing to include Q1 numbers, and in Q1 2012, they saw 3.2 billion uh, likes and comments every single day. Um, Which those likes and comments numbers, they like to to put that in there. It's like almost an unfathomable, ridiculous vanity metric, right? Because there's nothing to compare it to, and we really like. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around what that even means. Well, but it's engagement, right? I mean, it's like sure. it's, people aren't just opening the app. They're actually doing right, stuff right. in the yeah. app. Great point. Um, and, and in these days, uh, we'll get to this in a second, it wasn't so much the app as it was the website yeah. on desktop. Um, and not only, you know, things are going really well for Facebook at this point. Not only do they have these huge, use, unprecedented user base, unprecedented engagement, but they are making real money, too. Yeah, they were they were profitable by their IPO, correct? Very profitable. So, um, in 2011, they did 3.7 billion dollars in revenue uh, and over 1.7 billion dollars in operating income, um, which is wow. really incredible. You think of a private startup at that point in time. You know, people had never seen a private company at kind of this scale of both revenue and and profitability. Right, and that's uh, let's see. That's a forty-five point nine percent operating margin. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's quite good. Uh, as um, we were talking about a bit before the show, uh, hiring Sheryl Sandberg to build advertising at Facebook was one of, if not the best, decision that Mark Zuckerberg ever made. Yeah, this is this is worth a, a quick little story. But um, uh, before March of two thousand and eight, Facebook didn't have Sheryl Sandberg uh, kind of at, at the helm as as COO, and they had no ad of, uh, ad product that was yeah. They were just Facebook. running banner ads. Yeah, and they had some. They cut some deal with Microsoft. Mark was totally allergic to you know cannibalizing the purity of the site with with advertising. And uh, in March of two thousand and eight, uh, Sheryl Sandberg came in. And her goal and her charter was make the company profitable. So when when before she joined, uh, quote unquote, the company was primarily interested in building a really cool site. Profits they assumed would follow, and so in in late spring, Facebook's leadership team finally agreed that they were going to rely on advertising with the ads, quote unquote, discreetly presented. And then it was kind of her charter over the next three years to actually build a. Uh, an in-house competency coming from Google of uh, of a real ad of a real advertising and, platform, and and, yeah. and in three years to go from you know essentially nothing like they were making plenty of revenue, but it was low quality revenue from banner ads to go from essentially nothing to almost four billion in revenue and almost two billion in profit. Wild, um, totally wild. Um, interestingly, um, this is a, a fun side fact. Um, this was the days of uh, the Facebook platform and games on Facebook and particularly Farmville. Zynga. And they noted in their S1 filing that Zynga, rep- Zynga alone represented 15% of Facebook revenue at the time of the IPO. Oh, that's a huge risk. Yeah, <laughs> that was in the risk factors. Um, so as, as we're alluding to, uh, things are going great. February 1st, the big day, the day that everybody in tech has been waiting for. They file, Facebook files its S1, um, which happens uh, now, it happens before you go public. You file your registration statement, the, pers- the prospectus for, for going public. Um, in those days, it happened even longer before um, before the actual IPO happens. Now it's a fairly short time period after some of the changes made in the Jobs Act. Hmm. Um, so February 1st, they file. Morgan Stanley is lead left banker. And then showing how far Goldman had fallen just a year earlier. You know, they were in the 
pole position to be lead left, they actually get demoted to third. So JP Morgan uh, is second and Goldman is third. So this was a big, big demotion for Goldman. Um, And, uh, um, but as we shall see, Morgan's being lead left on the Facebook IPO wasn't necessarily the uh, golden egg that uh, (laughs) the banks thought it was. Um, So things are great, but there's one, one problem with Facebook right now. What's that? And that problem is mobile. Yeah. So fascinatingly enough, in the uh, um, in their S one, when they're list- listing the summary risk factors to the business, um, it, it, this one's incredible. One of the risk factors is growth in use of Facebook through our mobile products, where we do not currently display ads as a substitute for use on personal computers may negatively affect our revenue and financial results. So the risk factor they're identifying here is not not that, um, you know, we don't know how we're going to monetize the the phone. We haven't rolled out phone ads yet. It's that the risk is that people start using mobile products more than desktop products and we don't have a revenue model there. Yeah. They literally had no revenue model. So two huge, two, two, two aspects to this very huge problem for Facebook right now. Um, the mobile problem. One is a usage and engagement problem. And they had, we just talked about this incredible usage and and engagement metrics that they had, but that's all on desktop. Mm -hmm. On mobile, they have mobile apps for Facebook, but these are the dark ages of HTML5. (laughs) And the misery of the HTML5 mobile Facebook app, which was so slow, basically impossible to use, um, yep. and, and, and as a result, only about half, um, half to slightly less than half of Facebook's users were active on mobile. Yeah. And, and like fascinating to, to think about, um, all the implications to mobile being an afterthought. Like when you, when you opened the app, the, the newsfeed, as we know it today was not one unified newsfeed where you would see the, th- the same thing on the mobile app that you would on desktop. It was like you would see a completely different set of information, like a different algorithm determining what you would see served down to you a different way, cached in a different way, obviously not nearly as responsive. This was, um, you know, philosophically, they wanted to be able to move faster by dynamically controlling the HTML that was served down without having to resubmit right. to the app store. And not making a bet on, you know, this was, as we've talked about on the show, the age of the mobile platform wars and is iOS going to win right. or Android. And they thought they could be really flexible by having this HTML5 app that was one app that would get put in a wrapper and shipped to both app stores. Um, but yeah, it was not working. No. And it's funny, even doing the research for this episode, I read a bunch of articles about this, and I remember doing this. Most, A lot of people, rather than installing or using the the app on their phone mobile for web. Facebook, they would go to m.facebook.com yeah. <laughs> and use the mobile web because it was better than the crappy app that they had. Yeah. Shocking. Which And, and I mean, this was um, in tech years uh you know four years four plus years ago four and a half years ago a long time um but it's not like the mobile ecosystem was undeveloped at this point in time like there were apps like uber existed right there was no excuse for not having i think twitter had already bought tweety so the ios client for twitter was exceptional at that time yeah um tweety became the the native app and the like to put this in perspective where they had no ability to monetize on mobile at this point. And, and so, they- and that was the, so one half of the, the huge gaping chest wound that Facebook had at this point was 
the app sucked. Right. And then the other half was they had no monetization model. <laughs> right. They made no money right. from mobile. And and to put that in perspective today, I think well, David will tell us the, the story of, of uh, kind of everything along the way. Facebook's earnings came out a, a couple of weeks ago and mobile advertising revenue represented 84% of ad revenue for the quarter. Yeah, so that was the third quarter of 2016 as we're recording this today. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's basically the entire business today. Um, So the story of how we got there um, is massively tied up in the Facebook IPO. And and actually, even just a couple months later after the IPO in, in September 2012, Zuckerberg was on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt that year and he said, the biggest mistake we've made as a company is betting on HTML5 over native in mobile. Um, that's how how much over a few short months he realized what a big problem he had. Wow. Um, and it, it's probably worth, before diving back into the story, to um, like set some context on the numbers here. So um, IPO, biggest in technology history, you know, third largest of all time. Uh, priced at a hundred, the market cap for Facebook was 104 billion. Yep. Um, which we'll get into in a sec. Okay, cool. Yeah. Why don't you just dive in then? Okay. So, uh, we're still on the road to IPO. Uh, and, um, it's now April. Facebook is on its, um, uh, has been working on its roadshow and getting, presenting to investors, uh, large institutions who will buy into the IPO. And on April 9th, 2012, they come out with a rather shocking announcement at the time that we've already covered on this show in one of our early episodes, and that is, in fact, our benchmark of what a great acquisition is. They announced that they're acquiring Instagram, and we talked about this a little bit on the episode, but just to step back again here um, and put this in the context of how crazy this was that Facebook was had re- filed their S1. They're in the process of going public and they acquire a company that has 13 employees for a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, that this was just crazy. Um, and, uh, but, but underscores how much, how Mark and, and Cheryl and the team were coming to realize how big of a problem mobile was for them. Yep. And the entire rationale for the Instagram acquisition was around bolstering their story and their user base in, in mobile. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember trying to rationalize this at the time and talking to friends. And I think we even talked about this on the Instagram episode that, um, you know, there, there were a few things that Facebook held near and dear and one of which was being the the um, source of platform and identity and that was quickly becoming really important to them to get a foothold in that everybody sort of needed a Facebook as, as infrastructure on the internet but the killer app for, for Facebook was photos. It was photo sharing. It's, yep. it's what got by far the most engagement. It was nostalgic. All it, those comments it, and likes. Yeah. Billions every day. Yeah. Yep. And so for them to to lose that foothold where like that, that's really their core of strength is this is where people share and engage on photos. That's a total existential threat, especially when everyone's attention is shifting to mobile and they don't have a credible offering there. Yep. And and they actually, um, you know, in, the, in this time leading up to the actual IPO, Facebook was and most companies do amend their S1, their, their, their um, registration statement uh, quite frequently as new information comes up. Uh, and they're and they're working through um, feedback from investors and whatnot, um, and and of course they amend it for this acquisition that they announce. And they actually say it's interesting. They say in the 
in the S1 that they intend to continue operating Instagram as a standalone entity in product, hmm. um, which we talked about on our show. Um, but interesting that they actually put that in the S1 for Facebook's IPO. Um, but then they also say, this is, this is after they talk about Instagram, but in the same paragraph, we believe that mobile usage of Facebook is critical to maintaining user growth and engagement over the long term. And we are actively seeping, seeking to grow mobile usage, although such usage does not currently directly generate any meaningful revenue. Um, <laughs> this is how important they're, uh, they're realizing it's becoming. Uh, also, interesting side note that I found while I was doing research here. Um, there was a breakup fee on the Instagram acquisition of $200 million. So if really? for whatever reason the acquisition didn't go through, Facebook would have paid Instagram $200 million. Wow. Um, wow, that's, that's enormous. Because Instagram, like a lot of the time, uh, you're going to have a breakup fee like that because of the incredible costs that you incur by um, you know, uh, opportunity cost and, and negotiation yep. and, uh, and like the time. And usually it's, you know, you see those things often when it's like a public company acquiring another public company. Right. Um, it's impacting the stock price, but this was a 13 person startup. Right. And it's not like when we were talking uh, to um, Zillow CFO, Kathleen Phillips, how like the, the, the negative signal that it could send to the market, um, uh, to, to truly as shareholders and to truly as, um, you know, incredible number of stakeholders from the advertisers to all, all the people that depended on them. Like Instagram didn't have a lot of stakeholders. Instagram didn't yeah. have a high opportunity cost of other things they could be doing to the tune of $200 million. It's not like yeah. they even had more than a few people like working on the acquisition. It was yeah. Kevin and Mark talking. And some very excited VCs on their board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. So um, wild that it's that high. So things keep keep moving along in the process. On May 9th, uh, Facebook files the sixth amendment uh, to its S1. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Things keep going along. Um, and mid-May, uh, they decide that they're going to set May 18th as the day, Friday, May 18th, as the day that Facebook goes public. Um, so the start of that week, though... Something that there's there's an inauspicious start, and that's um, at the beginning of the week, GM, um, that we've already talked about on this episode, General Motors, uh, announces that they're going to stop all advertising on Facebook because um, it's not actually working that well for them. Yeah. And they they've wanted, been spending $10 million a year with Facebook. And they wanted flashier ad units. I mean, they, yeah. their, their major complaint was, look, on all these blogs, they're letting us take over the whole back page. We can slide stuff in from the sides. We can get this big header that pushes all the content down. And all we get are these crummy little, you know, static ads on, on Facebook on the side. And I don't, yep. I don't know if they had started newsfeed ads at that point, but the, the, either way, the ad formats on Facebook have historically been so much more limiting than the kind of um, arguably user hostile things that you get across the, the advertising ecosystem on the web. Yep. Um, and, uh, but you know, no matter 10 million, $10 million, that's a big account, but Facebook made, you know, $3.7 billion the past year. So, you mm -hmm. know, drop in the bucket, things proceed. Um, the night before the IPO Thursday night, uh, Facebook holds an all night hackathon leading up to the IPO. And then in the morning, everybody's been up all night and, um, the whole company rings the bell for the NASDAQ remotely, um, remotely from California and hmm. Zuckerberg pushes the button and big fanfare, um, and then, uh, and then the company's supposed to start trading. And, and so they priced the IPO, um, the night before they price at $38 per share, mm -hmm. which gives Facebook a market capitalization of $104 billion at IPO. Um, 
again, unprecedented in technology history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how many, they, they sell enough shares to uh, consist of how much value? They, they sell 421 million shares uh, at $38 a share, raising $16 billion in the IPO. And about half of that, the company keeps, and about half of that is selling shareholders um, that are monetizing their shares. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Zuckerberg presses the button in the morning, Everything's supposed to begin trading, and uh, and actually, when um, when companies go public on the Nasdaq, they actually delay trading a little bit um, so that at the open, um, the the stock doesn't start trading right away. They have a little time to make it orderly because usually there's a lot of interest in IPOs and a lot of um, a lot of trades that are happening. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, the Facebook was supposed to start trading at eleven oh five a.m. Eastern time on um, on Friday, May eighteenth. 11.05 comes, people are placing trades, no trades are happening. Hmm. The NASDAQ is broken. <laughs> Facebook has literally broken the NASDAQ. No I mean, it's way. functioning for all other stocks, but um, but uh, what NASDAQ would later describe as a technical error occurs, and this <laughs> just unleashes mayhem on the Facebook stock. Um Traders are placing orders and they don't know if they're going to get filled at all. Plenty of orders placed during this time period aren't filled. Um, or plenty if they're going to get filled at the wrong price. Or if they're going to get filled at the wrong price. So a lot of orders actually get filled at the wrong price, at a higher price than what people were placing them at. This is a disaster wow. of epic proportions um, on NASDAQ's part uh, and actually ends up contributing. This really hurts NASDAQ. I mean, up until this point, NASDAQ had always been the place for technology companies and all the tech companies were on the NASDAQ and the old school companies were on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, After this, I mean, NASDAQ still has plenty of tech IPOs, but the New York Stock Exchange really makes a push. Yep. Um, So when Twitter ends up going public, they do it on the New York Stock Exchange uh, Fitbit, Grubhub, Zendesk, lots of tech companies are now using the NYSE. Um, and it, a lot of it is because of this. Um, so it's pretty bad. And, and eventually NASDAQ actually settles two lawsuits. The SEC um, files a suit against them. They pay $10 million to the SEC and then a shareholder uh, class action lawsuit against them because of this uh, for people who lost money in the Facebook IPO. Um, and NASDAQ ends up paying $26.5 million to shareholders as a result. Um, so once, once it all gets sorted out, though, later in the day, Facebook does begin trading. Um, and it's pretty clear that things are not going well. Um, the stock ends the day at 38.23, so up 23 cents from offering price, but that's a really bad sign because that means, um, they didn't get a pop from lots of excess demand and people wanting to buy the stock. Um, and what that usually means, and this is what happened in this case, that the underwriting banks ended up supporting the stock, um, because they've staked their reputation on this IPO. Mm -hmm. They don't want to let the price fall below, um, the offering price. And so they end up, uh, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs end up buying a lot of shares to support the price, uh, on this first day of trading. Well, that doesn't sound sustainable. No. And it doesn't because the next trading day, um, which is the following Monday, um, it's a bloodbath. So market opens on Monday and within 15 minutes of trading starts, um, Facebook is down almost 14%. Um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but like stocks don't fall, stocks don't move 14% in one day. Also, I mean, if you think about like that, that means that like $15 billion of market cap 
was destroyed. Just erased immediately. I mean, that'd be like, um, if the whole market moved that much, that'd be like the Dow losing like 2,000 points in one day. Um, and this is the second day, Facebook's second day as a public company. Oh, that's so, like destroying like 14 Instagrams. Yeah, <laughs> immediately. Um, so not good. And it's so not good that uh, it actually trips what's called a circuit breaker um, that stock exchanges have built into them that if a stock starts really getting pummeled like this, they'll stop trading in it um, so that short just, sellers... Just for that stock? Just for that stock, yeah. Ah. So that short sellers can't like aggressively bash the price down. Mm. Um, so this is this is really bad. Um, and uh, ends up closing that day at about $34 a share, uh, which is down 11%. The next day, on Wednesday, uh, or this, I guess Wednesday, two days later... Um, the uh, <laughs> the stock opens closes down another nine or sorry Tuesday closes down another nine percent at thirty one dollars a share. Wednesday, the stock opens and news hits that Facebook is getting slammed with a shareholder lawsuit because news is leaked that 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 sixth revision that I mentioned to the S one prospectus a couple of weeks before the IPO. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that there was actually a little more to that story than just revising the S1. And what happens is that um, that was the first day of the official roadshow for Facebook on May 9th. And um, Mark and Cheryl and the executive team were doing the roadshow. And at the end of the day, David um, Ebersman, who was the CFO of Facebook at the time, uh, takes Morgan Stanley aside and says to them, hey, we're actually going to lower our guidance for uh, what we expect revenue and earnings to be for the second quarter. Uh, wow. And, and you don't do this when you're on your That's IPO roadshow. private information. Yeah, well, it's private information, but A, um, you don't... Uh, so they were giving guidance as part of the roadshow to institutional investors, um, sort of like... Uh, you could think of it like practicing your earnings calls, but mm-hmm. um, investors are going to want to know what management's outlook is for well, it's the practic- future. Practicing your earnings call, but to one shareholder and not all the other people who are like, well, right. And they've just given the first part of the, you know, a roadshow with the old estimates. <laughs> and uh, so now they have to figure out what to do. But the other thing is you don't, you don't lower your guidance during the roadshow. You lower it before you go out on the roadshow. Right. Um, once even, you've started, what, what would you do in this situation if you got news that you should low, like that it's going to come in lower if you were in the middle of your roadshow? How do how do you fix that? Well, you probably the- don't do what Facebook and Morgan Stanley did, mm-hmm. which is uh, they decide that they're going to call the equity research analysts that are going to cover Facebook and they're going to disclose this news. And the reason for this, by the way, is that mobile was really hurting them. So they were mm. terrified that they were going to come in below expectations because they were behind on mobile Hmm. and people were switching over to mobile faster than they could get products out the door and get monetization done. Um, So they call up the research analysts, but they call the research analysts of the underwriting banks and they tell them that this, they're going to revise earnings down. And so the underwriting banks, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan and, and Goldman, they all call their clients their institutional investors, which are mutual funds and hedge funds, and they tell them, hey, Facebook, you know this IPO that's going to be the IPO of the century next week? They actually just revised their forecast down. So you've now got this situation where the public has no idea that any of this is happening. But all the big institutions But all the big institutions know, all the clients of the banks that are doing the underwriting for the deal. Um, And so we find out much later, but there was a huge amount of short selling pressure on the Facebook stock at the IPO because all these banks are like, 
well, now there's an a- information asymmetry. Like well, I know something you don't know. May as well, yeah, uh, they should capitalize that on that on behalf of their clients. I mean, that's what they do. So is what they did a securities violation? Like, is that legal? Well, um, it's a very much a gray area. Um, and, uh, they actually, uh, Facebook never, uh, gets in any trouble for this, but Morgan Stanley, uh, takes a big reputational hit Hmm. and ends up settling a lawsuit actually with the Massachusetts state regulators. I'm not sure why it was Massachusetts and not the, uh, federal sec. Um, but the only lawsuit that ends up getting settled, um, and it's not that much money. Morgan Stanley pays $5 million in the settlement to, uh, Hmm. um, to Massachusetts for this, but they, you know, tacitly admit wrongdoing here. Um, and this is a big, uh, um, a big oopsie for them. Yeah. It's crazy thinking about in these like highly controlled environments like this, that, uh, a side conversation like the two of them had can, can create ripples of that magnitude. Well, when you're talking about a $16 billion IPO that is literally the biggest in technology history, and you've just created this information asymmetry, uh, and that's going to be the most watched by all parties, including the SEC of all time. Well, when you phrase it that way, David. <laughs> yeah. Not, uh, not a good, uh, not an auspicious beginning. Um, so all told, when all this is done, the first two weeks of Facebook as a public company are terrible. Um, the stock goes down during nine of the first 13 trading days. And by the end of May, um, so two weeks after the IPO, uh, Facebook had lost a quarter of its value. And remember, it IPO'd at $100 billion market cap. So $25 billion in value just wiped out. Wiped out. Wow. Um, the Wall Street Journal calls the IPO, quote, a fiasco. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so then what do you do? So now you're, now you're the company, you're Mark, you're Cheryl. Um, you know, you went, you go from being the most hyped IPO in history to literally a fiasco with all these shareholder lawsuits flying around. Yeah. You've got this gaping chest wound of not figuring out mobile. Yeah. So to me, there's, there's two things going on here. One is the, the PR thing that you have to manage and the entire like financial ecosystem that you're now a part of. And you really have to, um, you know, weave carefully here on, on, you know, your next few quarters are going to be watched so carefully. Um, you've taken a huge reputational hit. People are afraid of buying your stock. Other people are opportunistic and getting in and feeling like it's maybe a little risky. But then the other thing that's kind of going on here is, you know, Facebook just needs to inwardly look at their product and, and, and this is really what they do is say, look, all of this, this, um, these symptoms that are happening in the, in the, in the financial yeah. market are because of the problem that one, we don't have a credible, like a great mobile experience. And, and two, everyone's shifting to mobile anyway, even with our crummy experience and we don't have a, an ability to monetize there. And, you know, it, the interesting thing is it doesn't take them too much longer to, to actually launch, which I'm sure you'll tell us about in a moment, um, to launch their, uh, their uh, mobile as ads always. product, but like it is so interesting that um, you know as a management team they they kind of took a step back, focused on the fundamentals, focused on improving the product, focused on serving their customers, and like actually rebounded from this with with a you know very strong you know step into mobile. Yeah, I mean this is um, for me, and you know when we get into grading in a minute here, like this is the defining moment for at least the 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 public company you know, part of Facebook's journey. Like this is what, why they are a great company and why Mark and Cheryl are great leaders. I mean, 
um, it would have been so easy to hit the panic button with everything going on here. I mean, the amount of pressure was just immense. Um, but they do exactly what you said. They, they, um, they spend the rest of the summer completely focused on mobile. And this is, um, you know, when you hear, uh, about, uh, you know, Facebook has a very unique corporate culture, but they have, uh, essentially like a propaganda department, um, that makes posters and puts them up around campus in Menlo park. And, um, uh, posters all of a sudden went up all over campus. Like, you know, mobile is our future, you know, and, um, uh, and, and they get the whole company in the period of just one summer, basically completely focused on mobile. Um, they spend all summer working on native apps. Uh, August 23rd, uh, they release their native iOS app. Uh, the native Android app comes a little later. Um, and then shortly thereafter, it's not like they release that and the market's like, oh, great, problems are solved. Right. Um, on September 4th, Facebook hits its all-time low at $17.73 a share, which puts their market cap at about $49 billion. So they just lost $50 billion of market cap. Uh, this is really the depth here. Wow. Um, but they release, they release a product. It's a great product. People love the iOS app. And more importantly, it has the ability to insert ads into the feed. And now... The, the age of the native ad and advertising in the Facebook feed on mobile is born and, and um, kind of like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Uh, it's just incredible. So they don't turn on advertising in Q3, but Q4 of 2012, they do turn on advertising on mobile. And they go from literally $0 to 23% of the entire ad revenue for the whole company <laughs> uh, comes in via mobile on, in Q4. Wow, um, which which is amazing because when you you think about where they've transformed to today, um, they basically have cracked mo- a- advertising on mobile. I mean, we we the the newsfeed ad unit is is like the best ad unit, and I think that for when we shifted to mobile, everybody tried to move their banners down to tiny little banners and that didn't work very well. Yep. And now remember uh, are, like millennial media and I add, Oh and, yeah. Uh, oh ad mob and all that stuff. I add launched my career. I, uh, did I ever tell you that's about this? right? Yeah. In, in seize the day we benefited from Apple, which is uh which is an app that you built uh, while you're in college, right? Yep. yep. Uh, it's kind of one of the early to do lists in the store. Uh, we launched and we were one of the first partners, the, the to have iAd in there and we had like what a crappy ridiculous CPMs and Apple featured us so like there was like I think Nissan Leaf was like one of three advertisers that actually bought ad. anyway so banner ads like didn't work very well Apple has since sunsetted iAd um a lot of publishers are moving to just putting their square desktop ads in the middle of, of articles. People are getting closer with these sort of like native ads in, embedded into, you know, publisher, um, publisher formats, but really but like what really works the, on the, mobile is, is a native Facebook, Facebook ad. And yeah. like when you're scrolling through that newsfeed, well, you know, you scroll sort of at every, or you, you stop at every story to pause and look at what it is. And for that brief moment, the advertiser has the opportunity to take over your entire captive attention in a way that they never could on desktop. Yep. And like Facebook cracked it and it, 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 they're, they're the fact they did, that 84% they? of their revenue today and as a hugely successful company comes from mobile advertising is a huge testament to them turning it around. They cracked it. I mean, in a period of about six months, while going public with the and while acquiring Instagram, um, they basically invented the mobile ad industry. Um, 
and uh, and and I think a really nice way of of putting a bow and on and and tying up the Facebook IPO story is that the next year um, uh, TechCrunch disrupt 2013. So in 2012, Zuckerberg had said Facebook uh, said um, Zuckerberg said in an interview on stage that HTML5 was the biggest mistake that he'd made in the history of the company. Yeah. Uh, 2013 TechCrunch disrupt. Um, Michael Arrington asks uh, Zuckerberg on stage, you know, so how about that IPO? And uh, um, Zuck says, you know, this is a quote. He says, I'm the person you would want to ask last on how to do a smooth IPO. (laughs) But, and this is, you know, this is a year later. He says, but it's actually a valuable process. Having gone through a terrible first year as it made our company a lot stronger. You have to know everything about your company. It took us to the next level and we run our company much better now. Pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep. Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. So should we go into uh, what would have happened otherwise? What would have happened otherwise? Well, I think this is a kind of a natural point of segue because it, in one of the things that I was thinking about and what would have happened otherwise is um, there's sort of three things that, uh, that you get when you IPO. Um, three sort of like advantageous components to it. The first is an influx of cash. Obviously, yep. Facebook's Facebook's going to raise six, seven billion dollars in uh, in cash that that goes directly to marketable securities or cash on hand for the company. Um, the rest obviously goes to investors who are existing investors who are cashing out. Um, the second is the fact that if they're going to do M and A transactions in the future, having public company stock way more valuable than difficult to value private company yeah, stock. Not necessarily more valuable, but uh, the uh, the industry term is it's a liquid currency. Mm. Uh, in that you you can assign a value. You can say like one share of Facebook stock is worth you know X on the public market. I can tell you with certainty it is worth. 
$17.73 on September 4th, right. as opposed to, I don't know, what's a share in PSL worth, Ben? It's a little speculative at this yeah, point. Exactly. <laughs> um, and that ties into our third too is liquidity for shareholders. So when you when you IPO, you know, you've got all these employees that that have been working for private company stock options for years, a lot of them having purchased them, and you know, they can't really get liquid. They can sort of use the second market. Well, they're using shares post and second market. Yeah. So it's interesting that like uh, some of the trials and tribulations of the IPO can be attributed to the fact that there was a uh, sort of a value assigned uh, to the company by the transactions that were going on in second market, but there were so few of them that it was a, a pretty illiquid marketplace. So you've got this like uh, very rough estimate of what the company is worth, sort of setting and guiding what they're going to IPO for. And um, you know, if they hadn't IPO'd, you could have even more of this going on. And the longer they wait, the more difficult it gets because people are super anxious to to get liquid on the, this, you know, the part of their compensation that they held for years. A lot of it, life-changing amounts of money. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think I'd say here that a lot of the clear just bungling of the IPO yeah. was probably a result of just waiting too long. And there was so much pent up pressure there, um, you know, pressure to perform pressure to, um, the, the last, uh, the, that round that, um, Goldman had done, uh, that they botched with the, um, letting private wealth management clients invest via the special purpose vehicle. That was at a $50 billion valuation. So, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook wanted to deliver a 2x return on that and wanted to hit the mythical $100 billion market cap. Um, I think there's just a lot of, and then they were forced to by second, by, um, second market and shares post and, the job the lack of having the jobs act which is funny because um, you were saying that that while they were on the road show is when the jobs act got yeah signed. so the jobs act actually gets passed into law while they're working on the ipo so ironically they could have avoided a lot of this pressure if they just waited a little bit but they didn't know that at the time yeah and it it, it really did seem like what would have happened otherwise like if they had stayed private you know uh to their knowledge it wasn't going to get passed and they shouldn't count on it and they sort of were forced to ipo um if they had continued to wait longer like actually we're seeing a lot of companies do today um you know you run into these sort of issues where early investors need to get their their money out and they're gonna i don't know do big secondaries and um you're gonna have this the the same sort of issues that we're having today with the super unicorns which we should talk about in in uh in tech themes but another big one that i i think is worth talking about is the fact that they went under a tremendous amount of scrutiny by going public like this really forced management to understand every facet of the business and understand where their huge key risk factors were i I really think that the the most interesting part of that as that um s1 is where they identify risk to the business Mm -hmm. because truly like it uh, they probably were working on the some of the mobile advertising stuff beforehand but like it is a huge slap in the face and like a huge wake-up call to realize our business has an existential crisis on its hand. Yep. hands. And so many other companies got destroyed in the wake of mobile. And it was interesting that Facebook was able to kind of like keep their head above water until they really kind of came out and thrived. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, um, it's such a testament to Mark and Cheryl leading this company to do that because, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a running joke in the industry that like, you know, risk factors, quote unquote, in, in S1s are like a joke. Like, you know, you have to put them in there. So let's make up some like phony risks to our business that actually make us sound stronger. Um, but 
as part of, you know, I think because of all this disaster um, that the IPO process became, they had to really answer to like what these risks meant. And they saw literally half of the value of the company evaluate, uh, evaporate before their eyes. And, uh, you know, what, what stronger wake up call to, uh, could there be to, um, understanding that they had a big problem they had to fix. Right. And I guess, you know, they could have priced lower and, and gotten the pop that they were looking for. Maybe they just got out ahead of their skis a little bit and, uh, could have like weathered this first year by, you know, pricing at, 70% getting a little pop up to like 75% and then yep. you know over the next 18 months then really kind of turning the gas on but and it's interesting they definitely could have done that but like to what would have happened otherwise would they then have noticed like would the magnifying lens have been shown as brightly on how big a problem mobile was right and would they have again fixed like fixed the product fixed the ad model fixed the monetization model invented a new ad unit within 6 months yeah Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. All right. Tech themes? Yeah, let's do it. Um, the biggest thing that I think we, we both really want to talk about here, and we were chatting a little bit before the episode, um, this totally changed the way that tech companies IPO. It was um, a cultural touchstone, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> Which is, of course, according to something else, because Wikipedia makes no claims to be correct, yeah. but rather referenceable. It actually, it was a reference to, I forget <laughs> what article labeled it a cultural touchstone. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we, um, companies that were IPOing before were averaging three, four, five years before they IPOed. Facebook went eight and had this total calamity on their hands. And, you know, we went through a pretty rough patch last year where there were just not a lot of tech IPOs and, and yep. bleeding into early this year. And um, I think you can probably speak to this better than I can, but we're definitely in a period where people are waiting longer now. And that seems like you can kind of trace that back to Facebook. It's so interesting. I think um, one of the um, lessons that Silicon Valley and the tech world seems to have absorbed from the Facebook IPO is don't go public. It's terrible. Like, um, and, yeah. and the IPO was indeed terrible as we've said, but what's so interesting is like Zuck would be the first one to refute that, right? Like in his quote at, you know, a year later at TechCrunch disrupt, like it was great for the company. It forced them to really, you know, step up and play with the big boys, uh, play in big boy land and big girl land. Um, and, uh, uh, it, but, but the lesson that's been taken is totally the opposite. So Ben, you were referencing this. I, I pulled some numbers on, um, some tech companies, well-known tech companies that went public before Facebook and how long between founding and when they went public. So Zynga went public before Facebook a couple months before, uh, four and a half years from founding to IPO. Which is crazy to think about. Benzinga was built on the back of exploiting opportunities within Facebook, right? Yeah. <laughs> like that Facebook may have been whatever, 12% or something like, uh, or 16%, 15%, 15% reliant on Zynga, but Zynga was like a hundred percent reliant on, on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, and then when exactly. they moved, like ran into big troubles when they tried to move off of Facebook and kind of control their entire ecosystem yeah, with their own website. Realized they had no control. Um, another company, <laughs> similarly Groupon three years from founding to IPO. I think I was at the TechCrunch disrupt when Andrew Mason was on stage and said, never take your company public. Yeah. Right. Like this was the, this was what people were, entrepreneurs were internalizing from this. Um, you know, Zillow, 
which we covered six years um pandora seven and a half years people thought that was a really long time mm-hmm. to go from founding to public you know the vcs were dying to get out of that company um linkedin that we covered six and a half years um so that was kind of like the normal before facebook after facebook like like you said, Ben, you know, there's the really great companies haven't even gone public, but the ones that have, like Etsy, ten years, Shopify, eleven years, Fitbit, eight and a half years, um, Atlassian, thirteen and a half years, Twilio, wow. nine years this year. Um, people are staying private a really long time, and and not just not just staying private, but raising just Tons. absurd amounts of money. So. Um, you know, <laughs> Google, right? Like it's, it's so funny to see the evolution of the generations of tech companies and how they treat, you know, behave in the private markets. Gen- generations in the last 20 years. Well, right? generations <laughs> in tech companies are about four years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going to college. Yeah. <laughs> um, Google raised $25 million before they went public. Uh, Facebook raised, you know, kind of two to $3 billion when you include that Goldman round mm-hmm. um, before going public without the Goldman round, you know, somewhere around a billion or so um uh uber has now raised 11 and a half billion dollars um over the eight years or so that uh, <laughs> it's insane that you can raise 11 billion dollars without having to like be under the scrutiny of a public company and i guess yeah. i mean that's that's totally the cited advantage right is like we don't have to disclose all these things it's better for competitive reasons but like Really, it's for a lot of these companies. But the reality is it's just worse for everybody. Yeah, Um, yeah. It's worse for the companies because you're not accountable to these massive challenges that you're facing. Like, what if, like, let's imagine, uh, let's do another, what would have happened otherwise for Uber? Like, let's say instead of raising the last couple billion dollars, Uber had gone public and was staring down this DD situation in China as a public company Mm -hmm. um, and would have had, you know, been forced to really fix it. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that uh, hundreds of years of, of standard accounting principles and and having to disclose in this very standard format is actually like quite good for actually keeping, good for the company. keeping discipline yeah. for the business. Yeah, um, and uh, um, and and it's not you know it's not good for investors, right? Because investors now the reason you know and what you've seen since the Facebook IPO is obviously like the age of the unicorn has existed and that's that's twofold you know it's one company staying private longer not wanting to go public um, but then related is that investors all the people that were investing in these IPOs like their their business model is predicated on getting cash into companies at this stage right. so you've seen T. Rowe Price you've seen Fidelity you've seen Tiger Global the hedge fund you've seen Dragoneer and you know XYZ other directly public company public markets investors start doing late stage private venture rounds yep because that's what they've always done it's just now those deals are happening in private instead of in public it's bad for the company it's bad for the investors because they don't get the disclosure and it's terrible for the public because like you can't buy these stocks it's really like kind of anti-patriotic like it follow me on this but the the um American prosperity is built on the fact that for hundreds of years, American corporations have innovated. Like we, you know, the computer, the internet, like all these things that like we conceived of and, and you know, brilliant innovators in the U.S. Be, often because of our great public, public education system and a lot of the, the kind of shared values of our culture. Like having public markets allows for uh, the everyday person to 
you know, now it's more like through mutual funds and, and index funds, or if you want to take a flyer on, or on a company, but like benefit from the aggregate wealth creation that, yep. that comes out of the American corporation. Yep. And like it really freezes those people out. And it's really, I mean, if, if you want to like really carry it forward, like sort of contributes to wealth polarization. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. Like, I think there, you know, there are two elements of, uh, um, as we are seeing in this election cycle play out. So, viscerally like income inequality and wealth inequality in america is more polarized than it's ever and, been and here's the crazy thing we're sitting here on monday night uh, our listeners will will know the outcome of this election where yeah. we do not yeah we're literally the night before the election here um <laughs> which is uh, also crazy um all that rioting outside that you hear, all the sirens and stuff, is because of the Seahawks Monday night football game here in Pioneer Square, not because of the election. Night before the election. Maybe Seattle has 50-50. its priorities either straight <laughs> or, or completely wrong, depending on how you view things. Um, but yeah, like part of that is that these entrepreneurs are creating these tech companies and like they're getting massively wealthy, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, mm-hmm. you know, Travis and the Airbnb guys and whatever. But, um, but it's equally on the investor side too. Like right. the people that are investing in these companies are so much more institutions now and for so much of the wealth creation period of these companies than they ever were so much more yeah when you restrict the access to invest to people that already have the information and means to do so and large enough you know amounts of money to deploy it's it's like um it's a rich get richer scenario and uh yeah it's pretty crazy and actually, uh, to kind of continue this, like thinking about tech trends or really like investment trends, um, with big institutionals coming down market and investing directly rather than deploying that capital into private equity and late stage venture, it kind of puts the squeeze on those industries. So, oh, yeah, like, absolutely. There, with There's a few things sort of contributing to this trend. There's this notion that we've been talking about that companies want to go public later, but you know, they are investment vehicles where large amounts of money can be deployed. So large amounts of money will be deployed. So there's that thing going on. In the on. private markets. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it, simultaneously, you have this other market force that's fueling that, which is uh, over the, since the development of the internet, that one thing has always been true. And that is more information will be more available to more people than previously existed. And so now it's so much easier to get information than it previously was that you um, institutional investors, VCs and and private equity firms would make the case to their limited partners and their investors saying, look, I have information access and Mm -hmm. and connections to these startups or these late stage companies that I will deploy this capital into. And I have unique access to that. Whereas like uh, that's becoming less and less true. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't... um, there's much more visibility into what companies are performing well and people can kind of go find them directly. And obviously that's not entirely true. Like the, the, there's still a very human element to all of this, but it is, uh, in general, it's easier to find out who is running a company and if that company is doing well and reach out to them, if you have an attractive offer to invest than it ever has been before. I mean, I think about this every day in, you know, being a venture capitalist and at the early stage, we're somewhat insulated from this somewhat, but like, only somewhat. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of three things that a venture capitalist does. And I didn't make this up, but, uh, uh, you know, lots of people talk about this, but Rose it's totally true. Principles yeah. of venture capital. <laughs> you know, you find company one, find companies, 
great companies to, you know, pick them, decide, you know, if you're going to invest or not, if you, if you think the company has high potential or not. Um, but then three, win the deal, uh, if it's a competitive deal. And, you know, it used to be that like those three disciplines were like all really important. And now like, at least the belief is that it's all about winning the deal. Uh, you know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Like you can find companies easily and like, yeah, yeah. You can tell like what's going to be successful and what's not. I mean, like there's some judgment there, but yeah. you know, um, it's kind of a commodity, but like winning, like that's, it's all about winning now. If, well, if that's the case and it's really all about, you know, just getting the best deal, then, uh, it should be more entrepreneur friendly and like prices should go up and it should be much more commoditized to the point Which is where exactly what's happened. Exactly. That, that investors uh, effectively just get the minimum acceptable return that any of them are willing to deal with. Yep. At the late stage venture, this is a hundred percent what has happened over the last few years in the market. And it's changing slightly on the margins. Um, but but this has been a powerful force mm-hmm. um, across all of venture and especially late stage venture in the past few years. Hmm. All because of the Facebook IPO. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark and Cheryl. I don't know if we're saying that exactly. But. No. Um, all right. Should we bring it home? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, want to talk about how we thought about um, what our criteria would be for grading IPOs? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, you know, the way that we normally grade uh, an acquisition is um, through the lens of was it a good way to deploy that capital for the acquirer? So we kind of close our eyes and don't really care about was it a good thing for the acquiree because like they're getting a bunch of money. It was a great thing. Their investors are cashing out. And almost every time that we analyze it, it was, it was good. Yep. And, and we think a little bit about like the financial, you know, returns to the acquirer, but um, you know, it, it, we're, we're not spreadsheet jockeys here. Right, we, right. We think we're, strategically was this was this a good move for the acquirer? Yeah, and we think about um, did that acquisition uh, both provide that that financial return, but sort of in a, a longer lead time scenario, um, was it something that made that a better, more lasting, more enduring, more more valuable for longer, more valuable for longer company? Um, and so the way that we decided that we're going to grade IPOs is through that same endurance lens. We want to assign this a grade based on the rubric of did it make this company a more lasting and enduring institution, have it a, a, a bigger competitive moat, make it a, a stronger, more viable, long-lasting company. Yeah, the 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 way... Um, we were talking about it before the show and, and, and I want to think about it is like, was the IPO a springboard for the company, um, or, or a diving board? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people thought the Facebook IPO was going to be a diving board. Yeah. Yeah. And so what that allows us to do is sort of zoom out from that, that terrible plunge, you know, in the first week plus the ensuing months. Really Um, the whole year. Yeah. Uh, For the first year. Um, I mean, the stock was below the IPO, uh, below the IPO price. Right. And it, it allows us to look at the company as it exists today and and look at that moment of IPO and say, was that the right move for the company or not? So With that rubric in mind, mm-hmm. um, what's your grade on this? I am going to call this an A-. minus. Um, a lot of that is based on how bullish I am on Facebook today how great their strategy has been uh, since the IPO. Um, 
correcting for a lot of those blunders. The minus is because I am not convinced that all of the the um, tumultuous times that they went through contributed to the the success that they are today. Hmm. I think that they could have gotten here. They definitely needed to IPO. I think that yeah. that was a, a no doubt about it. They needed to do that situation. Um, but I think that they could have gotten to this point of of uh, you know hyper growth and and like kind of satu- saturating the uh, addressable human race with internet um, crux that they're at today. Yeah, I, I think they could have done that without such a bungled year. <laughs> uh, no doubt it was a bungled year. Um, I I'm not so sure. I. Um I am going to give this as uh, probably unsurprisingly giving my enthusiasm during the history and facts. <laughs> um, I'm going to give this an A plus uh, because I think they wouldn't have. Um, and I think had they not gone through that year and had this massive, you know, 20,000 megawatt spotlight shown on them, um, they wouldn't have moved so fast uh, to plug the mobile hole. And it wasn't just a hole, like it was a chest wound. Um, and, uh, and built, like we said, not just the product, um, but, uh, the whole business and advertising model and invented native advertising practically within six months. Um, I think they, I agree with you. I think they could have done it eventually, but had they not moved so fast, uh, mm. because of this, would they have lost? And, and the other thing that's in my mind here, um, clearly, May was the pivotal moment for the Facebook IPO when things really started to go south and these problems, these cracks started getting exposed. But I got to imagine that the whole process was really in Mark and Cheryl's minds, um, uh, starting to expose some of this stuff. And what if they had not bought Instagram in April? Uh, Hmm. and, um, and if they had not bought Instagram and not moved so quickly to plug these holes, would there be a future where, or an alternate present today where Instagram had remained an independent company, had become the Facebook of mobile, had figured out native advertising and completely eaten Facebook's lunch? I mean, cause if you look at, so if you look at, uh, Facebook's revenue over the last couple of years, essentially the desktop Facebook is completely flat to down over the last four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was their whole business, this meteoric rise that made them the most hyped IPO ever, the largest technology IPO ever, that business is essentially dead. Hmm. Um, and like you said, 84% of their advertising now is mobile. Um, what if that were, you know, half, a third, a quarter, a fifth or a tenth of what it is today and Instagram where the gorilla in mobile advertising. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of things they would need to go right there, right? Like a whole lot of things for sure. It's, it's that they would need, you know, to, to have a Sheryl Sandberg, right. Who, who's going to build this like operational advertising sales business, right. You would need, um, well, it's actually really interesting looking at, uh, so Twitter didn't have this crux, Yep. Right. Like Twitter. And Twitter was always, you know, if not mobile native, like it was yeah, built let's for mobile text messaging. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and you look at their transition to the, the smoke, the smartphone world. And, um, I mean, Twitter is still like, still doesn't have a great ad unit. Yeah. 
and th- there's a lot of problems going on there and we're kind of seeing it all fall apart in front of our eyes but like uh a large part of it is like it's it's just never like facebook ads are way more compelling particularly on mobile and like if Facebook, you, you raised this interesting point, like if, if Facebook didn't feel this existential crisis, could they wind up in a Twitter-like situation, at least with their, uh, uh, maybe not with engagement, but with monetization? Yep. Or or even, you know, maybe not Instagram, um, but I'll throw it out there. You know, it was uh, February 2012 when Facebook filed its S1. One year later, February 2013, Snapchat's founded. So, hmm. you know... Um, a lot of possible features. One of the greatest things that I love the most about our industry is it is so hyper-competitive. Um, and I think this is just such a great um, case study of why you can't rest on your heels even when you are the largest tech IPO in history. Yeah. Because, man, the next generation is coming right after you. Yep. All right. Um, speaking of Twitter, mm-hmm. follow-ups. Twitter, lots going on on Twitter these days. Um but they're shutting down Vine, potentially selling Vine. Yeah, no surprise there. I mean, it's shocking to me that um, they haven't, and I think these are will, will come, but they had like 9% layoffs. Like it, it seems like there's a lot more of that to come. They're, they're, they got to streamline their products. Like it's kind of shocking to me that they didn't, they didn't do Periscope 2 in one fell swoop. I think they yeah. prob- the reason that's probably living on is because uh, – um, Facebook Live is proving so the future of Facebook that um, Twitter is is really afraid to exit that race when Facebook is making such a big bet on it. Yeah. Um, Wait, uh, total aside, by the way, related to Facebook, um, doesn't get it gets a lot of press, but not in this context. Like Facebook is kind of trying to do this again. Everything we're just talking about, oh, and it's reinventing totally. itself around video. I think, yeah, I think there's an existential thing where they totally and VR, right? Like yep. they, they totally feared like missing the the next boat since they almost missed the mobile boat. So like buy Oculus and be way ahead of the curve on Try that. Buy Snapchat. And, yep. 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 And, and you know, Snapchat is mobile, and I just made that analogy like, oh, could Snapchat have killed Facebook and mobile? But, like, Snapchat's also video. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so for me, uh, you know, tough to do. You never want to kill products that people love. But, like, uh, I want, I'm rooting for Twitter to survive at all here. And yeah. so I think they need a lot more belt tightening to get there. Because it's not, um, it, to me, they're in this tif- very difficult situation where, all the investors are super excited that they might sell. So that sort of pushes the right, price up. Right. And then that price tag ends up being too expensive. So they're in this like weird catch 22 where they, they were unsuccessful in finding a buyer. And now they have to like go figure it out. And, and they've already gone public. Right, Maybe we need right. to add a third category to the show, which is like what happens if <laughs> you've already gone public, you have no buyer like <laughs> yeah. what then it, plan it, plan c yeah it's a it's an invaluable product to the world and it like i really want it to endure and it's actually a pretty good business like they sell a lot of ads and there are ad there there are reasons why people use twitter ads and, and can't necessarily satisfy that on any other platform it's a good business it's not a facebook size business and they yep. really need to reduce their costs to to yep. get it to a place where it can actually live on sustainably yep um i agree Quick follow-up on Skype, our last episode. We speculated on the show that um, Microsoft might have used foreign uh, cash to buy Skype, which was a non-U.S. company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out uh, that is indeed the case, was indeed the case. Uh, we were pointed uh, in this direction by Nick Seguin, dear 
friend of Ben and the show, um, helped us a lot in the early days with, with feedback on, on yep. the pilot. Um, thanks Nick. Thanks Nick. Um, and, uh, he pointed us to an old blog post that he wrote after the acquisition, uh, um, about talking with a friend about this. And yes, it turns out Microsoft did use uh, cash that it was holding overseas to buy Skype. And so got a massive, was able to essentially repatriate that cash tax-free, then got a massive tax benefit for it. Um, so, so definitely yeah. plays into how you should think about the Skype acquisition. Yeah. And it's, if I recall, not um, not only did they avoid, you know, paying the, uh, you know, approximately 33% to repatriate, repatriate that yep. capital, but then there, there's that second advantage too. Yes, there there is that second advantage. And um, that's uh, what is apparently referred to as, quote, the deadly D, um, <laughs> that uh, they can repatriate apparently up to another eight and a half billion of cash uh, tax-free, which at a 30% tax rate is worth two and a half billion to them. Um, so, um, in theory, uh, perhaps Microsoft is getting about $5 billion in tax credits out of, uh, a value out of the Skype deal. Pretty wild. And that's eye opening for me. Like if a U.S. based company uses overseas capital to make a purchase overseas, they can repatriate that same amount of capital back kind of in like exchange for deploying that capital in an acquisition. It's a, it's really interesting to start thinking about um, other companies that have yeah. huge amounts of cash overseas, Apple, Microsoft, and and you know, actually most big tech companies Google, at this point. Yeah, yeah, all of them. And like what they could possibly Facebook. do. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Any uh, corporate uh, tax lawyers out there who know any more about sure, we'd, this? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Um, all right. Carve out? Carve out. Um, so I was chatting with some of the, uh, listeners in, in Slack. Um, if you'd like to join the Slack, go to acquired.fm and, uh, you can sign up there. Um, and, uh, we were talking about the internet history podcast. Oh, this, so good. This is an awesome, awesome, awesome podcast where, uh, I believe it's Brian McCullough, Brian McCC on Twitter. Um, it's like a hundred episodes or, or more. Yeah. It's, it's super long. This is so good. If, if the, you like acquired, you will love Yeah. The Internet if, History Podcast. Particularly the story part. Yeah. The, the, I, I started listening um, to the, the show like a year ago, and it's, 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 like, it's sort of like long-form reading, but just having it sort of read to you. And he starts out with the, the, the Netscape, uh, the story of the Netscape IPO dating all the way back to you know, the founding of the Mosaic Project and Mark Andreessen and really like all the incredible drama in there. But the, the episode that I just listened to that I, I loved that had all sorts of interesting nuggets um, uh, about the founding of Amazon with Amazon's technical co-founder and employee number one, Shell Kappen. And it's so interesting to get the engineer's perspective on the founding of Amazon because in, in you know, the ensuing years, um, you kind of get the, the version of it that's in the everything store and you get Jeff talking about it on stage. And um, it's really this like not quite revisionist history, not quite sensationalized, but definitely um, through the eyes of and through the lens of what what Amazon is today. And Shell left Amazon, uh, you know, a, a few years after they founded it, and sort of he almost feels like his his viewpoint is frozen in time. Mm. And you really get to hear um, not only the the perspective of someone who who remembers just that piece of Amazon history extremely vividly, but you know, he's also like one of those just super endearing old school engineers. And the way that he talks about, you know, oh, well, you know, 
Uh, we were using a, an Oracle database that had never seen this many transactions <laughs> before. So we crashed that and I wasn't an Oracle guy. So we were just kind of making it work. And then, and like, it's, it's awesome to hear about all these really early stage Amazon, um, stories about when they were kind of patching it all together in the early, uh, early days of the web. So, um, whether you're an engineer or not, uh, I think anybody listening to this show will love that episode. Yeah, totally. And, uh, um, like we said, let us know too if you like the uh, the IPO addition to the show. Um, uh, if you guys do and we we go forward with it, we're definitely going to have to do Amazon at some point. Absolutely, no no shortage of drama in that IPO either. Nope. Um, but uh, okay, my carve out for the week I thought would be appropriate given that we covered Facebook today uh, is a relatively new book uh, by Parag Khanna uh, called Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization that I read. This is a really good book. And basically, the it's like a, you know, uh, like a geopolitical like think piece, which usually is not what I'm into, but um, <laughs> it had it recommended to me. Um, and it's great. And basically, the thesis of the book is that um, th- what uh, the axes of power in the world, like geopolitically, are not nation states and borders and geography and land uh, or even populations that much anymore. It's connectiveness, connectivity, hmm. um, and that the more connected a nation state is, uh, whether it's physically with like supply chains or like, you know, um, supply chains for industry or, or oil pipelines or water or electricity, um, or the more connected they are to ideas and to trade, um, also relevant, very relevant to the election that is happening tomorrow as we record this. That happened um, in the past for all of you. And happened in the past for all of you. Um, uh, anyway, the argument is that the more connected a, a nation state is, the more powerful it will be. And that um, really nobody gets this better right now than China. Um, and if you look at a lot of China's foreign policy, um, the Silk Road and uh, the um, essentially massive trading block that they're forming in Asia, um, it's all kind of based on on this. Um, and it's delivering, you know, creating massive uh, power and influence for them. Um, anyway, great book, totally related to Facebook connecting the world. Yeah. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens 
as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes. All right. Well, that's it for today. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you feel so inclined, we'd love a review on iTunes, uh, maybe a tweet, uh, share on Facebook. It's how we grow the show and it's how we make it even better. So thank you so much and have a great day. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who 